Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening, and now, on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. Our guest this week is Giuseppe Gallo, the founder of Italicus, the previous global ambassador of Martini, and the owner of Ital Spirits Consultancy. So sit back and enjoy our chat with Giuseppe. Hi, hello everyone. I'm Giuseppe Gallo. Italia born, uh, raised and grew in London, UK, and I've been working in hospitality and cocktail industry for the last 20 years. So thank you very much for dedicating some time for us. You mentioned that you are from uh, Italy. There's quite a lot to talk about. So why don't you tell us, where are you from originally? I'm originally from the Amalfi Coast in uh, south of Italy. Uh, in a little town, very popular in Italy for the making of the buffalo mozzarella, just off Salerno, where the famous university, the old bartenders love, was back in the days. Um, and uh, I was born in 1980. I went to hospitality school till the 1999. And after that, I started to travel for work uh, in order to uh, craft my profession uh, and specialize into cocktail and bartending. Nowadays, it's a quite rare thing to find bartenders or people in hospitality that actually started from hospitality school. Did the hospitality school give you an advantage or like, how was it? Uh, yes, uh, I completely agree with you. It's also very difficult to see uh, many people after hospitality school continuing work in this industry because as we all probably aware, it's such a, a tough and heavy job mainly at the beginning of your career and lots of people they usually give up and try to find something a little bit more uh, soft or more cleaner job if i can uh, put it like that (laughs) yeah Uh, for me it was not really many options as you know coming from uh, a very heavy touristic uh, geographical area as a Murphy coast most of the businesses including my family uh, business it was a little daily working very much with the tourists. So obviously during the summer, by even during the winter, it was always a job available, uh, shift available uh, for bartenders, cocktail waiters, waiter restaurants, chef, receptionist. Uh, so it was almost like a, a natural choice made with my parents when I was 14, 15 to go to the hospitality school. And uh, I do think that uh, it really gave me uh, a very good basic to start this profession, this work. Uh, it obviously had to be improved after the school. Uh, you know, you can study as much as you can, but then if you don't practice <laughs> what you studied, it's very difficult uh, uh, to succeed on anything. So what I did after I got my diploma on the summer of the 1999, I started to travel, first of all, north of Italy or other cities in Italy, and then abroad in Switzerland, US, and UK. Awesome. What was the first job? Hmm. Very simple. It was uh, a barista. So when I was uh, 14 or 15, uh, you starting to work uh, uh, in my hometown in the little barista cafe, making espressos and cappuccinos. Uh, serving breakfast or working there on Sunday over the weekend. 
My official first day at work, it was the 1st of July, 1995. Uh, and it was in a little three-star hotel in uh, a village called Pestum. It's very famous as it's one of the uh, historic uh, town village uh, founded by the Greek in the south of Italy. Uh, the word Pestum is Greek. Uh, and it was literally like, you know, serving in a restaurant uh, to kids and, you know, families uh, uh, during the busy weekend. Uh, and from there, I got a job for two months. So I worked officially from the 1st of July till the 31st of August that summer, which was my first summer break after the first uh, year at the high school. And I remember that uh, I think I lost seven or eight kilos in two months. And uh, when I went back home uh, that evening in the end of August, uh, my mom, she thought that I was sick, how skinny I was. <laughs> uh, it was just because uh, I never worked so hard and so much in my life beforehand. But I also think that working uh, the summer season is quite cool, not only because, yes, you, you do get to work quite hard, but usually you are in quite fun cities, like it's holiday resorts and stuff. So at least I remember from my days working on the summer season, I was working very hard, but I was also going out quite a lot. So you, you kind of have a very, very little time to sleep. I don't know if your experience was similar. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you're 15. It was my first ever summer outside the house without my parents. And, you know, I was free to go to sleep at any time, wake up <laughs> at any time, do whatever I like it. And uh, it was very tough because uh, I was starting in the morning at seven o'clock for breakfast working all non-stop till 3 p.m., so after lunch. Uh, then I would have like a three hours break, start again at 6.30 in the evening and finish again around 10 p.m., 11 p.m. But the first thing he was go run, you take a quick shower and then you go out and enjoy yourself. You know, there are some uh, holidays for everybody. So everybody enjoying, I completely agree. And that's probably one of the reasons why I lost so much weight as well. So you you left Italy at quite early stage. Uh, what was your first experience abroad and why did you decide to leave? My first experience abroad, it was uh, in the summer of 2000. So one year after I finished the school in Switzerland. Uh, and the reason why I went to Switzerland is because I find a little uh, hospitality uh, course, which was hospitality management at L'Ecole Hotelier de Lausanne. Uh, which was really, really helpful and valuable looking back now. But moreover, I had uh, an opportunity to go and work as a stager uh, at a five-star hotel on Col de la Croix, which is just off Lausanne uh, and the lake in Geneva. So it was everything very close where I really learned a little bit more about that kind of like, you know, fine dining and Michelin star restaurant. Uh, I was a comedian, rang, so I couldn't speak any French. Uh, I had no expertise. Uh, I was studying at school in the morning, but I still remember very clearly that two months there during the summer, like, you know, be some of the most valuable and productive days of my life. So uh, how's uh, hospitality school in Switzerland? Because they are the best in the world, aren't they? It's a military service. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> it was yeah, quite hardcore. Uh, I wouldn't say hard course, uh, but they're very strict. Uh, you dare to achieve results. You're not there to waste or to spend any time during your summer. And also you pay for those courses. So I was literally making money working that summer with the money I was making, I was paying the course. 
So I had no money to go out and have a drink, but the money I was making, I was paying for my own knowledge, which uh, it was kind of difficult to digest back then, you know, for a young 20 years old, uh, single young guy, uh, visiting a different country, but uh, it definitely worth it. Uh, but they were very, let's say, uh, strict and ambitious and pushing in terms of teachers and mentors for us to really focus and dedicate ourselves to the course and to achieve the result. So you mentioned it was quite strict. Was it about uh, grooming or timekeeping or what was it that made it strict? Uh, it was uh, uh, a lot of new data, new information that we had to absorb. Obviously, it was not in Italian. So for me, for the first time, it was in different language. So it was even more difficult for me because I had to translate in order to understand everything. And on top of having uh, to work when I finished the course, I had to do some homework as well. And the homework, it was fairly heavy. You know, uh, back then, trying to build, uh, you know, a business plan or PNL, it was literally for me uh, speaking with an alien, like and I had no clue what it was all about. And all of a sudden, you're going from a very light style of school where you're studying grammar and, you know, geography and history and cocktails, like, you know, to have to start maths and finance and algorithmic and, you know, and rules. So it, it was really like, you know, uh, groundbreaking for me, but it was a big wake-up call that if I really want to become a manager one day or want to succeed in this profession, I had to improve my skills, my knowledge and my experience. What uh, did you do after Switzerland? I went back to Italy to actually do the real military service. Um, you know, in Italy <laughs> back then... <laughs> yeah. Uh, back then in Italy, uh, for the people born in 1980, so my year, like we were still required to do 12 months military service. Uh, I was lucky enough not to be forced to do the whole 12 months, but I lost the whole winter in Italy for the military service. After a few months, I had a dispense, so I could go. And uh, right after that, um, so it was already the summer of 2001, I went to work for two years at Villa Serbelloni on Como Lake on the north of Italy. It's a beautiful, stunning location just off the Alps between the Como Lake, the northern Lombardy region, uh, just at the edge with Switzerland, with, uh, with Lugano. And uh, one of the best experiences I ever had, because it was for me going back to the initial school I did at my early stage, but really like refreshing everything and actually doing practice there, because the cocktail that I was studying, I still remember the first ever cocktail I studied at school, I was 15, it was the Brandy Alexander. Yeah, it's true, we uh, all did that. Eh? We all started yeah. this brandy, brandy Alexander. <laughs> so like six in my whole life. <laughs> which you can imagine when you're 15, 16 and you do practice at school, you really like this kind of cocktail because, you know, it's cream, creme de cacao, some brandy, you know, it's kind of like, you know, on the sweet side. Uh, but I never made it at work. And all of a sudden I'm going to work there. And one of the first week in the evening, I have this couple sitting at the table and the lady asking for a brandy alexander like you know finally it's like you know i'm gonna make my best brandy alexander yes. now because i have experience <laughs> of that <laughs> it's uh so but you know i learned other things i learned uh, the hierarchy working with like you know historic established team and bartenders and a bartender a junior or senior bartenders 
Uh, it was a star, two-star Michelin restaurants there, so I learned a lot about fine dining, mise en place, back of house, planning, preparing, briefing, reporting, all things that obviously in the little coffee bar or in the little three-star hotel in the south of Italy I was not able to experience. So it was really a freshing up to me. And that's where I realized that without speaking a proper English, at least professional-wise, like in, it was no way I could grow in this industry. And that's why I decided after that, that the next step, uh, the next stop, it will be London. So this is like early 2000s. How was London at that stage? Uh, I came to London the first time uh, end of 2002. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was in London throughout uh, the 2003. Uh, it was very vibrant. It was very uh, hectic. It was fast. You know, you're coming from a little village in the south of Italy or a quiet village on Como Lake. All of a sudden, you find yourself in this cosmopolitan, metropolitan city with 10 million people speaking all different languages, moving so fast. Uh, everything was like, you know, wow, just like in another, another speed. Uh, but it was very interesting. It was very interesting because it was the first time for me to have a really connection with a multi-ethnic environment. And, you know, it was my first time that uh, really understood what does it mean a global environment. Mm-hmm. It was when I came to London uh, that you had all this beautiful mix of people and cultures all together. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It was not easy. Uh, I will not lie. Uh, I was making just the money to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember like, you know, my, uh, let's say, to-go uh, meal, it was KFC because that's uh, everything what I could afford it. Uh, I was eating mainly at the restaurant where I was working to have some decent food. I had to pay the rent for a room that I was sharing in the house with another seven people. I think everybody had the same experience who arrived to London for the first few months. I had to pay for a private school to study English. Uh, and uh, But uh, it, it was very interesting. Uh, it burned me out after not even a year. And uh-huh. therefore, I decided to go back to Italy and to take a little break. Uh, because at one point, it really became heavy uh, and really stressful. Then again, probably uh, I lost uh, a good uh, um, six, seven kilos back then. <laughs> so at this stage, probably your mom didn't want to send you out anywhere because every time you were coming back, you were skinnier and skinnier. <laughs> uh, spot on, absolutely, because I still remember as it is today, like, you know, with my two little secondhand luggages, like, you know, walking down, you know, the the door of the house and my mom looking at me from 10 meters a distance, like, you know, be so worried that I was sick again. The first thing she did, she called the doctor. So the doctor came home to do a checkout for me to see no if way. it was something wrong with it. Yeah, yeah, like she thought that was completely... <laughs> I mean, I, I still have a black and white picture that I took on Hyde Park. And I think it was uh, uh, Christmas Day of 2003. Uh, and obviously, like, you know, I, I was alone. I had nobody. So I had to go around with a couple of friends, which, you know, just to hang out. And we were taking those pictures. And when I see this picture, and like I see, like, you know, wow, there was skinny there. <laughs> like I could see, like, really, like, you know, where the weight was gone. So, uh, but as everything in the life, there is always a reason why they happen. 
Uh, and the best things we can do from our experiences is always like to take uh, the positive sides, uh, learn from the negative, but always try to improve and to take any experience we do to the next level, but never ever even think of or considering to give up, even if it was tough physically and mentally. So after this break, uh, you're back in Italy. What are your thoughts at this point? Uh, I went back to Italy because one of my schoolmates from the school, uh, he got a job at Hilton in Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had a position available. So uh, he called me. It's like, you know, there is a position available uh, at bar. Here I was working as comedian rang in London in a restaurant, the beautiful San Lorenzo in Busan Place. And I said, like, you know, I don't really see myself uh, working in the restaurant or, you know, become a restaurant manager one day. I rather, you know, want to get more specialized into bar and bartending. And therefore, um, I decided to go to Rome, do a job interview. I got the job at the Hilton, five-star hotel, beautiful bar. Uh, most of the clientele, it was American, Germans, French, English, so really cosmopolitan. And, you know, it was uh, definitely like, you know, one of the best working experience I had because it was also my first time that I started to see cocktail like, you know, the lemon drop martini or the cosmopolitan or the sea breeze and working with uh, brands or spirits that uh, I never heard before or I never used before because obviously there was a different request. So we were able to get different bottles that were not even like distributed in Italy yet. Uh, and that was my wonderful experience in Rome. How long did you work in Rome for? About a year. Uh, and at that point, I realized that, you know, I want to have some other experiences. It was, uh, it was not enough. Uh, I was too curious back then. Uh, and I was 25, so I was still angry of knowledge. But leaving a job like that in Italy, it's almost considered madness, right? Because you're working for a very fine establishment, you have a very secure job, and then to move on, it's a little bit crazy, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was one... Uh, I remember my mom, she didn't talk to me for three months. Because, really? you know, I had a, yeah, I had a permanent position, very well paid, with a house in Rome. I was living on a seaside, working eight hours per day, five, five days per week. Uh, it was, I don't want to say fairly an easy ride, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, I could stay there. Probably today I will still have a job. I'm still going there when I'm in Rome to see the people and still people who I used to work together, who are employed, they're still working Whoa. there. They have a family, they bought a house, uh, they grow in, into the company and there's nothing wrong with that. But it was, for me, it was just too early in my uh, personal life, in my career to decide to stop there. And uh, despite all the uh, downsides of leaving a secure job, uh, I tried different ex- um, ventures. I said, like, one day is going to pay off. You know, you know, when you have that gut feeling that's inside you with a butterfly and all the concern, you still believe that's the right things to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the right time to believe in yourself, listen to your own voice and just go for it. And that's what I did. It. I literally left the job in June. In a couple of weeks, I went back home in south of Italy, repacked my luggages, and I went to America. So the states, uh, sweet, sweet uh, states. How was America for you? Did you stay in New York, you said, right? 
I was uh, in New Jersey, actually, which is not uh, the ultimate uh, destination in U.S., but um, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was in the whole booking. Whole booking is the other side of the Hudson River, just facing Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was like uh, living in a movie for me. Like you wake up in the morning, you see Manhattan and it was just like, you know, something else. And um, even there, like, you know, obviously, because uh, in order to stay in U.S. more than three months, you need to have a working permit or some other kind of visa. And uh, what I had, uh, it was, I find, an, an hospitality management course at the Montclair University. Mm-hmm. And I went there to study for 11 months and I was working in the evening so I could extend my, my stay in U.S., uh, and I stayed there for almost a year and a half. Uh, at some point, uh, I had to go because obviously I didn't have the visa, I didn't have the green cards. And, you know, we're, we're still very sensible years just after the 9-11. So it was a lots of focus on immigration. Uh, and I didn't want to take any personal risk to stay there without uh, proper documents. And I said, you know, I cannot stay here for the moment, but let me go back to Italy. I booked an appointment at the embassy room. Uh, let me apply for a visa. Let me do the right steps to get the right mm-hmm. documents. Uh, and, you know, I go to Italy. I'm going to spend a few months there and then I'm coming back to US. And this was uh, November 2005. Mm-hmm. But so if it wasn't because of the visa, you would have stayed there indefinitely. Oh, yeah, yeah, I would probably now I would have like an, an American passport by now. Yeah, I wouldn't leave. Yeah, um, I had I was no I had no nostalgia of Italy. I was not missing my, let's say, previous life. And it was everything new, you know, like you, know, you got new people, new friends. It's such a huge country, different culture, like, you know, and, you know, when you work in, in a bar, in the cocktail industry, you know, U.S., is the you know real game and i would go there and i would find spirits and bottles and cocktails a terminology that i never heard before you know by now i was already 25 so i had a few years experience here and there but uh, it was a different game you know like you know i remember going for a drink to the rainbow room uh with a wish that maybe i could meet uh, the king of, of cocktail del de Graf. Uh-huh. But unfortunately, it wasn't there that night. But like, uh, you know, back then it was no Facebook. It was no Twitter or Instagram. It was no bar show, no spirits competition. So everything what I knew it was through the books, you know, the old style of books, paper books where you read through. Uh, and it's like, you know, I want to meet this person one day. You know, I remember Gus Regan that he was doing some bartending courses and I really want to apply it was not even for everybody. You had to apply in order to get uh-huh, into the uh-huh. course. And that was all like, you know, new motivation for me. It's like, you know, I'm going to work. I'm going to make some money. I'm going to, you know, invest in myself, do those courses, meet those people. And maybe one day I can go and apply for a job at the Rainbow Room for Delta Graph. It didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't happen. So at this stage, you're back in Italy trying to get into the US. You must have been reasonably demotivated because it's not, I'm assuming you were planning to stay there and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation where you just can't do it. So how did you cope with that? Well, I had to book a, a ticket, uh, flying back to Italy and try to deal with Italian bureaucracy, going to the American embassy room. Uh, it was like a nightmare even to, to, to make a booking. 
and it was everything so complicated anyway, like, you know, for whatever reasons, I couldn't get the documents. So yes, I was a little bit upset. I had to, you know, push back my return to US into um, the following year. And again, it was end of November, just the beginning of December. You know, Amalfi Coast is a beautiful, beautiful area, but during the winter, it may be a little bit boring, if you allowed me the terminology. And he said, you know what, I still have lots of friends working and living in London. Rather than spend three or four months here doing nothing, I'm going to go to London, find a job, work a little bit, and then um, before the spring, I'm going to fly back straight from London to US. And this was uh, early December 2005. And uh, yeah, not too far, exactly 15 15 years later now, (laughs) uh, a wife, two kids, a mortgage, and uh, two businesses in London. I don't think I'm ever going to leave UK again. Still waiting for the visa. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the visa, yes. <laughs> so uh, at this stage, you're back in the UK. What what did you do? What was the first? Uh, because I, I think at this point, it kind of felt like temporary, right? So how did you yeah. go about get, getting a job? And, and was it through the connections that you had? Yeah, I had uh, a lot of friends working at the Locanda Locatelli and Cipriani. You know, those couple of restaurants, they'd just been open for a year. So it was like, you know, the place to be back then. Uh, and as you know, if you've ever been in London, you know that uh, uh, probably 90% of the staff, restaurant and bar staff, they're all Italian. So they all like, you know, know someone who knew someone. So, you know, I'm going there, I'm dropping CV around uh, to those restaurants, through some friends, to other restaurants. And um, after not even a week, I have a job at the Zafirano restaurant in Knightsbridge. And I went there to leave the CV because two weeks early on, when I was still in Italy, watching the news, uh, I was watching that the Zafirano restaurant in London, uh, that year they bought the biggest white truffle coming from Alba. Uh, it was a two-star Michelin restaurant and I got a job as a chef there. Uh, and this one, it was the 5th of December, 2005, if I remember correctly. A few days before, I, while I was leaving CV around, I also left the CV at the bar manager at the Baglione Hotel in the High Street, Kensington in London. And uh, the guy, after two weeks, he called me and said, like, you know, we have a role available. I know it's just before Christmas, but, you know, if you think you're interested, why you don't come and we're having a chat? So literally after no even 15 days at the restaurant, I'm quitting the job as a chef terrain to take a junior bartender position at Brunello Bar at the Baglione Hotel. So I decide to cut my salary to do one step down in terms of role position, but in order to go and work in a bar. Mm-hmm. And it was the best decision I could make. So you stayed uh, in the bar ecosystem essentially. Yes, because when I went there, Matteo, the bar manager, was a very nice person who introduced me to a lot of uh, friends and colleagues in London. Uh, introduced me to Salvatore Calabrese. He took me to the 50. So I had my first introduction to the maestro. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, you know, introduced me to, uh, to Giuliano Morandini, to um, Alessandro Palazzi, like, you know, to uh, Tony Michelotta, used to run the Dukes back then. Uh, so, and a lot of those colleagues, they were coming to the Baglioni to enjoy some drinks or some dinner. So I started to build my network, my community within the industry in London. And moreover, what I think back then, the bar manager gave me the best advice I probably had in my professional life. 
Because once again, as you could hear, I was going somewhere, I always tried to invest in some private bartending course. And I was asking him like, you know, do you know any good bartending course? Uh, and back then I was like, I know that Nicolas Saint-Jean, you know, he has mm-hmm. this beautiful Flair Academy here in London. I may should go there. I know I heard Tom Dyer just opening one. You know, I was one of that young kids at Roadhouse for the final shouting there. Like they were like you know, legends for us. And, uh, and I remember him say so like, you know, I think you should do something different. Find a nice girlfriend, not Italian, so you can practice English. Uh-huh. And instead to go out and having a pizza, choose the bar where you want to visit. Go there, don't sit at the table, sit at the bar and start to chat with the bartenders. Never criticize, mm-hmm. but keep your eyes open and try to learn what they're doing. Because everywhere where you're going to go, you're going to learn something new. And just talking with those bartenders at the bar, you will learn new things. They will inspire you and you're going to improve your English. So which bars uh, did, did inspire you? Which ones were the bars that defined they were uh, sort of key for your development? Well, the, the bar that changed my personal life and my professional life definitely was the Montgomery Place as a guest. Mm-hmm. The Montgomery Place just opened in 2006. Uh-huh. It was the first kind of really speakeasy in London. And the guys who they opened the bar, they were Agostino Perrone and Stefano Francavilla. Uh, my wife used to live just above the Montgomery place. So all my day off, they were there because of my girlfriend and we were spending all our time at the bar at the Montgomery place Uh where we became such a good friend with Agostino and Gabriela. She's the wife of Agostino Perrone. And then Agostino and Gabriela are also like, you know, the godfather, godmother of our first daughter. Uh Uh-huh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, so we, we are still today, we are very, very, very close with, uh, with Agostino, with his family. And, uh, and then uh, Stefano left, uh, to go to, uh, Tommy Striagaves in San Francisco, uh, with uh, Charles Vexenen. Mm-hmm. And uh, Agostino hired a young guy from Slovakia. Nobody knew him. He had a very unusual style behind the bar. This guy was Maria Becky. And uh, that time I was working at the Purple Bar at Sanderson and I was looking for a bartender. Back then, when you're looking for a staff, you have a phone and you send texts around. It's like, guys, I'm looking for a bartender. Do you know anybody? Marian called me back. Say, I may have a friend that is looking for a new job. Uh, I'm going to send him over to meet you. And this new friend that Marian introduced me, he was Eric Lawrence. So uh, uh, before we start talking about Eric, because Eric, uh, I think, was... Uh another great person that you came in contact with. Would you like to talk to us about the Sanderson's Hotel? Uh, what was about it that uh, you liked and how was the hotel structured? Because the, the main bar, the long bar, was actually a money-making machine, wasn't it? Yeah, it was uh, basically by September 26, two, no, sorry, 2006. I, I thought that it was enough, my experience at the Baglioni, because uh, it was all, everything very interesting by where all Italians run by Italians and managed by Italians. And my question mark to me, it was, I didn't come to London to work with Italians and speak Italian all the times. I want to work with the English people, with other culture. I need to learn, like, you know, I need to see different things in order to 
expand my knowledge, uh, expand my mentality. And um, I won a competition that year. I won uh, a trip to Sweden with this competition. And there I met Angelo Vieira and Hugo Berlan, which they were running the uh, program at the St. Martin's Lane at the Sanderson Hotel. And um, while we were chatting, he said, like, you know, they were looking for a staff. I was looking for a new challenge. Like, what about when we're back in London, you come to see us? So maybe, like, you know, we can have a chat. And uh, by October that year, I started as a bartender at the Long Bar. And uh, it was the place where I think at some point I started to hate mojito. But just because probably <laughs> each of us, each bartender was making an average of 300, 400 mojito per night. As like, it was That's incredible. Crazy. Like, uh, at some point I had to put plaster on my fingers because I was putting like, you know, so much rum at the bottle at a funny shape that like it was actually like, you know, when you're starting to have a pain in your finger because like, you know, uh-huh. you're stretching too much. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, one of the nail from my finger, it fall off for Christmas because like, oh. because of uh, incredible, incredible. Like I remember running a shift in the evening, going back home and for probably one hour sitting on a sofa, armless, like, you know, just like, you know, hanging the arms on the sofa because I couldn't move my arm and my hands. How tired I was. That bar, <laughs> the long bar, uh, a good busy Friday or Saturday night, I still remember we would do anything between 800 to 1,200 people guests. And it was an average of between 25 to 30K take it per night. Oh. Only drinks, I mean, just beverage. It was no food. Like, it was, it, it was like shocking, shocking. You know, we had people like, you know, Nick Jagger come there. Yeah, like, you know, Quentin Tarantino, like, you know, Madonna. Like, you know, it was wow. It was like, the place was wow. The music, it was always like, you know, very high. Uh-huh. It is L-shaped bar. Like, you know, it, it looked like some point almost like in a stadium, in an arena. Because uh-huh. you had on, you know, on Saturday around, 11 midnight, you had like, you know, layer, layer of people put their hands up and try to place an order. Like, <laughs> and it was so loud that at some point I wouldn't even talk to the guest. I would just like, you know, mimic with my mouth. <laughs> like, you know, with the, with the, with the fingers like two, three, like just shaking my hands. Like that's it because I had no voice at all and they wouldn't hear me anyway because it was so high the music. And that was the energy of that place. You know, that place, it was groundbreaking. Like, beginning of 2000, like, you know, was wow, wow. So after the long bar, you guys uh, had this, like, residence-only bar called the Purple Bar there. What was the idea? Because it was a crazy bar as well, wasn't it? Yes, I wasn't that strong enough. So after, I think, five or six months uh, by the spring of the following year, so we are now in 2007, uh, I went to the bar manager and it's like, you know, I don't think I'm going to stay longer. I don't think it's really, that's what I want to do. I love making cocktails, but also I want to take some time to make the cocktails. I want to experiment. I want to do some other stuff. He is like, you know, uh, I think the word high volume is not enough for that part. <laughs> it was like, just like a machine. It was a caterpillar. And, um, and I said, like, you know, it was the spring. Maybe it's a good time for me to go on and start looking for another job. And, uh, the management, it was very nice and, uh, very intelligent to say, like, you know, we see that you're really passionate about mixology. You know, all this craft mixology that we're talking about today, back then, it was not that common. So it was just coming. Uh, you know, we're talking about the days where the French martini, pineapple, chambord, and vodka, 
it was the best selling cocktail, yeah? So like at that, it was like the ultimate mixology back then, yeah? <laughs> Just like you know, to yeah, give an idea. Yeah. of cocktail making. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, an espresso martini with a touch of Frangelico, it was a next what? level espresso martini. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, you know, forget about the cold brew or, you know, pea berry coffee from New Zealand or this kind of stuff. It was nothing like that. And I said, like, we have a, a bar supervisor position at a Purple Bar. He's a only residence bar. Uh, it's, I think it was, uh, what, probably like you know, 12 tables, 30 seats, uh, super premium, uh, champagne by the glass, the only champagne by the glass. It was Dom Perignon from 1996. Uh, we're changing the menu twice a year. It's a seasonal. It's all about customer service. It's all about giving the ultimate experience to our hotel guests or to our members. And, uh, and that's where I started. I took the challenge. I got the position and I started there at the Purple Bar uh, at the beginning of 2007. So the Purple Bar is also where you had the chance to work with Eric, as you discussed earlier on. Uh, so what stood out about Eric from the get-go? What, what made it special? The most important thing about the Purple Bar is to make it very clear that it was a vodka bar. The Purple Bar was very famous in the world, not just in UK, because he had one of the largest selection of vodkas in the world. Today, if you open a bar and you're telling we have a large selection of vodka, probably bartenders they're going to laugh on you. So like back then, vodka, it was the you know real deal. And so it was a very appealing to work there because even for us as a bartender, like a vodka brands, they were very active. Like, you know, I remember like done so much work with all different types of vodkas from Wibarova, it was our house vodka, Kettle One, Gregus, Belvedere, uh, um, Ultimate, like, you know, it was like Russian standard. Like we had so many, like, you know, uh, 42 below. Uh, we have all these like, you know, funny flavors. We were one of the few bars having all the four flavors of the 42 below vodka, the fijoa, the kiwi, the passion fruit, and the pew. It's like, it, it was a different, it, it was a different mentality. Let's, uh-huh. let's put it like this. And, um, you know, I started there after a couple of months. One of the bartenders, he was, uh, uh, from South Africa. So he had a working permit that he expired. So he had to go back to South Africa and I was looking for a bartender. So, as I said, uh, back then, if you're looking for stuff, you literally like send a text to your friend, a text message, no WhatsApp, no Facebook, no post, a text message. And the first one to reply was Marian Becky. And, uh, I was like, I'm going to send this guy over. He's a friend of mine. He's coming to me. Okay. Let's set up a date. We set up a meeting. And I still remember that day. It was like an early afternoon around 4 p.m., 3, 3 4 p.m. Uh, I was in the purple bar, we were doing the prep, we were setting up the bar, and I see this guy with his beautiful black velvet jacket, a proper tie, white shirts, a UKBG pin on his, uh, on his left side, a beautiful pochette, uh, colorful socks. Uh, he came with those like, you know, hair and gel all tied in the back <laughs> and with a nice, beautiful printed CV with his picture in color. Again, guys, keep in mind, Miguel, that back then it was no internet as we know today. So even print your picture in color on CV, it was kind of a mission. You need to go to a proper <laughs> shop to do that. Hardcore. Uh, and we're sitting there and, you know, we having a chat. It's Eric. Uh, you know, I could see the guy like Eric back then. He was working in a, a Asian restaurant in a Butchon place in Nicebridge. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's like I want to go from a restaurant bar to a proper cocktail bar because I love mixology. I love the craft movement. And I really want to, you know, push the barriers. So, okay, fine. Come for a trial shift. And uh, three or four days later, uh, he's coming for a trial shift for a couple of hours. And as you do with everybody, say, you know, make a, a margarita and cosmopolitan. And first of all, when he came for a trial shift, only the amount of tools he took with him. So he's starting to unpack all these. He, he, he uh, brought his own tools for his, uh, for his trial <laughs> yeah, shift. Yeah, yeah. What a genius, <laughs> man. <laughs> and he opened this bag. Back then, nobody had a tool bag. So let's be honest. Nobody had tool bags. We had like you know, three spoon, couple of tins. Uh, if you were like it, like a three-piece shaker in the bar. That's it. That's what we had. Uh, and it may be like in a cheap mixing glass somewhere. Eric is coming. He opened his bag. He's starting to get the three peaks, ice peak, uh, the single peak, uh, the Japanese bitters bottle. Japanese bitters bottle. Never seen something like that before. Never, ever. You know, we, back then we had a bottle of Angostura you pouring straight from the Angostura. That's what it was. <laughs> and so he, he, he literally set up himself like a doctor on top of the vice. Like, okay, so like you want to make a, a margarita cosmopolitan. I, I'm turning back to go to the door because somebody was coming in. And all of a sudden I'm starting to hear on the back, shh, 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 shh. All the shaking, like the Japanese uh-huh. shake. I'm turning back and I see Eric turning on the side, doing this funny shake. It's like, what is doing there? Like, you know, he's shaking on the wall. What, 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 what is that? And he's, he's like, Eric, why you do that? Why are you shaking like this? Ah, this is the Japanese shaking method. It's coming from, you know, he's starting to give me all this background about Japanese pretending a Japanese heart shake. It's like, you know, which make these all little bubbles on top of the margarita. Can you see like... Uh, it's like, it's, anyway, it's like, you know, literally like two hours later, I said like, Eric, if you want the job, it's yours. <laughs> like, it's exactly what I, it's even too much for me, but it's exactly what we need. Like, it was miles ahead, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's uh, uh, Eric, like even uh, Marian back then, like they were already to another level. And I remember those conversations back then with Agustino, as I said, like, you know, we were very close and Agostino was always saying, like, you know, the level of experimentation of Marian is just another level. There is no other bartenders in the world that I know Agostino. Agostino, back then, he was the class bartender of the year, theme bartender of the year. He was the hottest name in the industry. So saying that, like, literally, like, you know, his junior bartender, it was like, you know, the experiment level was another level. That's make you understand. And he was always saying that, you know, Eric, it's just a matter of time. Because he's so talented and because on top of it, all these like, you know, super defined skills and techniques is also Eric very charming. He's an entertainer. He's also like a really fun guy. It's very smart. It's really knowledgeable. So you could see he had all the, uh, you know, characteristics. He had all the skills to really succeed. And it's exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, both the writing was on the wall, was it? So after the Sanderson's Hotel coming back to you, you have left uh, for a brand job. So would you like to talk to us about which brand you chose and why and what was the idea behind it? Yes, uh, one of the great experiences we needed at Sanderson it was to create this academy for our staff, for our team, but also for people from outside. And that's how we became a very good friend with Marian or with Alex or with other bartenders in the industry because we were inviting them to join us uh, 
once or twice a week at 2 p.m. for a training program where we will ask brand or ambassadors to come by training our staff and ourselves on the categories. Uh, and one of the main regular there, it was Colin Dunn, which probably has been the one who opened up the um, idea at, that one day I could be an ambassador, I could be a trainer, mm-hmm. uh, because he really liked this idea of the academy that we put together. So one day we were discussing Scotch whiskey, another day American whiskey, another day vodka, another day rum, uh, always with different people. And I started to uh, cooperate and work more closely with the brands. Uh, and uh, one of my best friends, uh, it was uh, David Cordoba that uh, he was working in Edinburgh at the Bramble Bar. And David, he got a job as a global ambassador for Bacardi Ram. Uh, June 2008, uh, I'm in Italy. Uh, my sister got married, so I was spending a week in Italy. He gave me a call. He said, listen, uh, Martina Rossi, the Vermont brand, they're looking for a global ambassador. And I think it can be a good job for you. What about I'm going to put your name forward? And I said, David, but what is a brand ambassador? What exactly do you do? <laughs> uh, don't worry, don't worry. Send me your CV. And I sent him my CV. He's like, yeah, whatever. Like, I sent the CV. And least like, you know, 10 days later, I got a call from the Bacardi Global Brands Office in London. It's like, you know, we got your CV. Uh, we are looking for um, an experienced bartender to join our team as a brand ambassador. Would you like, would you like to come in for an interview? An endless process. It took almost like a year and a half <laughs> before <laughs> I actually started. But um, I was uh, I was lucky to make it through. So uh, basically by uh, May 2009, I got offered a full-time job uh, with the Martini Vermouth. And uh, meanwhile, the few months early, I got a job offered from uh, Kettle One in UK to be mm-hmm. the UK ambassador. But... Um, I back then I actually thought that vermouth was more interesting as a category as a challenge. Uh it was not many vermouth in the world. Like you know I think Carpana Antica it just came out. There were a few bars in London who had the Carpana Antica. Then it was Martini and Cinzano. That's it. It was nothing else. There's nothing else available. And um you know I was also a good friend with the uh, the ambassador Johnson Smith. And I've been already uh, to um, uh, to Rotterdam to meet the Nolet family, uh, and it was very interesting. It was probably like you know more safe and more cool to go with the Kettle One, uh, but I think I did. I made the right decision. I said like I'm Italian. I want to specialize on amaro, on aperitif, uh, and I think going with this challenge, with this brand, with this company, uh, he probably gonna give me a better journey, a better path down the line. Uh, and I started in May 2009 with Martini Rossi. So Martini is probably the most iconic uh, beverage brand in Italy. Uh, how was back then the brand? At what stage was it when you picked it up? And how did you guys progress towards the point where Martini was when you left? Oh, well, when I started and when I left, two different words. <laughs> Everything moved so quick. Um it's uh, when I started with Martini. Martini he was the number one brand by volume in Europe. Uh, it was about twenty million liter cases. To translate uh, in a finance world for everybody, we're talking about few billions turnover per year. And you end up working with this massive organization with this brand that you know it's everywhere that everybody knows. 
And uh, back then, the main priority for the brands it was a uh, um, cinema partnership. So they had uh, a TV ad with George Clooney and Naomi Campbell. And uh, my first project after five days, I started with, uh, <laughs> with Martini. It was to travel to Monte Carlo and organize for a week the hospitality because back then Martini was one of the sponsors of the Ferrari F1 car. Uh, so we rented a yacht parked for a week. In Monte not Carlo bad, during eh? the for- not bad first week <laughs> <laughs> for, for the Formula One weekend, and I'm going there and I see like you know models and actors and drivers and CEO visiting the yacht. And my job it was just to be the host, making the drinks and make them happy with some martini cocktails. And like you know, wow, this is like you know a, a dreaming job. And after that, it was the, uh, to go and work alongside Dolce Gabbana, the two designers, but not the team. I'm talking about Domenico Dolce and Stefano Gabbana Whoa. to create a, a, a new product with them. So uh, my first ever, let's say, NPD, New Product Development Project, it was Martini Gold by Dolce Gabbana, two massive international brands, Italian brands, that they're making one product together. Like, and uh, they did a TV ad where the main actor was Monica Bellucci. And I was there sitting in a meeting with the boss of like the director back then, and they were not sure if to choose Penelope Cruz or Monica Bellucci for the TV ad. So I, I, you know, I end up myself <laughs> in this world, and, you know, and the boss, not me, Italian, is like, hey, you, hey, you, as Italian, who would you prefer, Monica Bellucci or Penelope Cruz? And I was a young one, so like, oh, I would take both. <laughs> yeah, I would take both. Just, I'm, I'm happy either way. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was, it was stunning, but uh, anyway, uh, job then, like, you know, uh, I got more into it. And I have to say, probably like the biggest, biggest uh, experience take out of the journey with Martini, it was that I had the pleasure to meet the master distiller, uh, Ivano Tenuti, and the master blender, Beppe Musso, which uh, today I'm still very close to them. They are two really humble, but uh, super knowledgeable and sharp professional, which, uh, you know, we all like to experiment behind the bar. We like to make our own bitters, uh, to infuse and to do, but... uh, I remember spending time with them in the, um, at the distillery in Italy uh, after probably 20 minutes. You know, when uh, you have that moment that you black out, you say, you know what? I think that everything would have been done behind the bar in terms of infusing and stuff. I think it's better I'm going to keep it quiet because I look like a fool right now with those guys. <laughs> it's, you know, their knowledge is just another level. And, you know, one day, I remember always saying to them, one day with you, it's like one year at the university for me. That's crazy. Uh, you learn so much about production, operation, botanicals, distillation, vapor infusion, and wine, and blending, and sugar, and pH, and acidity. It's just another level. And, you know, I started to get mad, and I said, like, you know, we need to make sure that the bartenders, they meet those guys. I want my friends to meet those guys. You know, I want Eric and Agu and Martin. I want them to talk to them because every single word, when they're speaking, like, you know, it's opening a new door for me. It's giving me a new inspiration, a new motivation. And uh, they were not used to, as a master blender and master distiller, you know, they were not comfortable to speak in front of a, a crowd. So I started to bring them around a little bit to talk to crowd. And, uh, and from there, like, you know, they always consider myself a little bit crazy. 
And uh, when I started with Martini, I was pushing to say like, you know, if you see the Carpano Antica, if you see the Carpano Antica, we need to do the same thing for Martini. And nobody will approve that project because everybody's like, you know, who Martini? We are the biggest one in the world. Like, you know, why we need to make like, you know, a product that's selling a few hundred bottles here and there, like, you know, for that kind of price, what to justify the price? Like, you know, so trying, trying, trying until the 2013 when, uh, uh, after probably like, you know, dozen of refusal <laughs> to approve the project, it was the 150th anniversary for the brand. And uh, I proposed this project to a new director and I said like, you know, it's the brand anniversary, so we need to make a limited edition. And it's like, oh yeah, nice idea, limited edition. That's what we should do. Like whiskey. Yeah, exactly. Like whiskey. We do a limited edition. Why? What can we do? We need to do something like unique. Say, so, yeah, of course. Like something like, you know, top knock. Like, let me work with a master distiller, master blender to come up with something unique. And I'm going to Turin. I'm going to the, the distillery and I'm going to them. It's like, you know, we should make a vermut quinato because nobody makes vermut quinato anymore. And they look at me with their, like, an open eyes, vermut quinato. It's like, I remember the master brand, I haven't tasted vermut quinato at least for 30 years in my life by now. <laughs> I said, but that's what bartenders they like because I could see the bitter strand coming through in 2012, 2013. So everybody was looking for a new bitters, new bitters to add splash in the cocktail. It's like if we do a vermouth quinato, it's going to bring a new flavor profile into the vermouth category for bartenders to play behind the bar. And that's where the idea of Martini Granusso, he came out. And uh, Pat, I have to say that... Ivano, the master distiller, after that, he's like, you know, you know, I know that we had a fun of you when you proposed the Vermut Quinato, but we have to admit that you were right. <laughs> How dare you go? A uh, few years later, uh, in of a private course, it always takes a bit of time, no? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I still, I truly believe that probably Martini Granusso uh, has been, or definitely has been one of the top ever, quality-wise, in terms of formulation and complexity, uh, vermouth that the industry ever seen. Another product that I would like to talk to you about, because I think it was quite crucial, is the Reserva Speciale. The, the two vermouths that were launched at a very aggressive uh, price point, but extremely high quality. Can you talk to us about how that came into shape? Because they were launched slightly after you left, if I'm not mistaken. I launched it. It was my last project oh, with okay, Martini. Okay. And obviously, uh, Martini Granusso, he made the whole brand, the whole company confident that also Martini could launch a premium and a different style of vermouth. And so Martini Granusso was such a success and so much demand that then, uh, um, you know, the, not even like, you know, a few months later, the first thing the brand director, he came and asked me, like, you know, we need to make now a permanent Martini Granusso or style. And, um, they, they actually, like, and I remember finding the two names, Rubino and Ambrato, because I want to steal, you know, Martini, the whole range is Rosso, which is red, Bianco, which is white, Rosé. Like, so we need to keep going with the colors. Uh, and I was always giving the um, example of Johnny Walker, red, black, blue, double black, double gold, gold. It's like, that's what we need to do. And uh, I said, like, you know, we probably need to make something a little bit more simpler, then Martini Granusso, not a kind of like complex in terms of taste profile and sophistication, but still different in terms of flavor profile or formulation for bartenders to play with. And uh, for both of them, we make them, and I remember having this conversation that I was telling them, 
we can charge more for Ambrato and Rubino. There is a room to price the bottle a bit higher. But also, it's very difficult for a corporation who 99% of the business is a bottle, one liter bottle of vermouth for 10 euro, already pricing a 75 bottle at 12 or 13 euro for them is like it's a huge margin mm -hmm. and it's already like your premium position but going from there to 15 or 16 they thought it was really a bit too much of a stretch mm -hmm. but also lots of people within the trade i remember having this conversation with eric at the visitor center in turin when we launched martini because his first question was how much i'm gonna pay for a bottle it's like yeah, it will be 1250 in uk i said only 1250 why so low the price Like, you know, and I remember, like, it was the brand director next to me. It's like a good question, Eric. Well done. But, you know, the day approach was like, you know, we don't want to be greedy. We already allowed more margin for the company because we're selling on a 75 size and no liter. And we already pricing €2.50, so 25% more of what is our current range. So from a technical brand architecture point of view, They were right. From looking today, looking back, it's like you know, from an entrepreneur point of view, you could take a little bit more risk. Yeah, I remember that because when he came back from uh, this trip that you guys arranged in Milan, he brought a couple of bottles at uh, the American bar, we tried them. And I remember asking him, how much is this? Like, Because my idea was like, this is going to be at least 20 quid. And then he's like, I think it's going to be 12.50, man. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Absolutely crazy. But anyway, I think it did very well. It was a very good quality product. It still is. So. Oh, today, today, that product, it was like, you know, I, I remember like, and I consider Martini, Ambrato Rubino as uh, two kids of mine still today. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they just went over 3 million bottles last year. Whoa. Crazy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he's doing very well. Martini Reserva is doing very, very well. They're Very good products. They definitely worth it the price for the quality. And uh, I think they're very also unusual in terms of test profile. Uh, I still remember, like, you know, I have all the voice, like the, the, the botanicals here. You know, Martini Ambrato is the only vermouth that is truly using a sweet Moscato DOCG from Alba region. Most of the brand they're claiming to use Moscato. But nobody said that they're using dry Moscato grapes, which is one of the most common grapes you can find in the world. Mm -hmm. Nobody say that. Everybody say Moscato, but they don't specify dry or sweet. And moreover, the DOCG from Alba, it's the ultimate sweet Moscato grapes. I mean, Rubino is using Nebbiolo on a mix of wine at the base. There are no other wines that do that. No other vermouth. If other than Vermouth, they don't doing it, I'm always challenging bartender. You should ask why they don't do it. It's, it's, it's a very expensive, uh, it's super premium product. I mean, the Biolo is Barolo. Eh? We're talking about yeah. super premium wines in Italy. So but enough about Martini. I think it's time to talk about uh, your own enterprise. So first of all, would you like to tell us uh, what was the idea and why you decided to move away from Martini? Uh, with Martini, I was uh, starting my eight years with the company. And by then, you know, the project I've been working on from uh, the Formula One activation with the Ferrari and then with Williams, with Dolce Gabbana, with a cinema premiere around the world, 
Jamie Oliver partnership. And uh, in 2014, I was lucky enough to uh, won the uh, International Ambassador of the Year at Terms of the Cocktail. And, um, you know, it was now one year, one year and a half, uh, launched Graluso, launched the Martina Reserva, launched Martini Gold, few other products here and there, involved in developing some other products, redone the whole visitor center with Martini in Italy. Uh, I was about 35 and I said, it's about time probably to take the next challenge for me. Because otherwise, at some point, you're starting to get very comfortable uh, and maybe it's going to be much more difficult to leave later on. And I always had an idea to do something on my own. It was not really clear yet what I want to do, but I knew that really to push myself to do something else, I had to leave the job. Because otherwise, you always got trapped a little bit in your daily workload and then you can't focus on what can be the next project you can do. And the first thing I did, it was to open uh, this one. We are now at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, end of 2015. I opened a bar on the King's Road in London, Gastrovino, a barotto, which was a Amaro and Vermouth bar. And um, obviously still working in a category that uh, I have my heart attached to it. And I remember a beautiful article by Alice Lacey Sells on Financial Times that she thought that we had one of the largest Amaro Evermood collection in UK, uh, which at the moment is sitting in my box here too. <laughs> and, um, uh, and then from there, uh, I started to have a few brands approach me to help them with free projects. So I, I uh, initiate uh, the agency company Eater Spirits as a service agency. And all of a sudden, like, you know, six months later, I already had like, you know, five top projects in Italy, in US and UK, uh, 10 different brands. Uh, we had Rudy as a brand ambassador, Rudy Carraro for Montenegro. And uh, it was now a full-time job because uh, business was keep coming in. Uh, and uh, by then I already decided that uh, I was helping some companies and brands to uh, work on their product to launch some new product. And it was always some kind of a, a compromise from our end because, you know, the client is asking something. So we were there to provide a service to the client. So we had to make compromise on a brief, on outcome, on the result. And I said, I think it's a time now to make my own brand. And therefore I decided to really seriously push Italicus project idea forward and on the 1st of September 2016 we launched Italicus Rosario di Bergamotto at Savoy Hotel in London. So I, I remember the launch uh, very well and uh, to be completely honest with you I thought when I looked at the packaging I thought it was beautiful but I read the label I thought Rosolio and I thought okay Giuseppe Gallo lost it <laughs> so would you like to tell us why you picked such an obscure uh, aperitivo category? And uh, how did you turn it into the success that it became? Uh, three main reasons. Uh, first one, obviously working for Martini for many, many years, I was going to a university, a museum in Italy. I remember in Bologna, in Firenze, in Salerno, in Turin. And every time I was researching about Vermouth history, always the word Rosolio, 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 Rosolio popping up. And even myself, I was like, what the heck is this Rosolio? And I started to ask around, and the person who knew the most about Rosolio, it was my 84-year-old grandma, uh, that she's like, yeah, of course, Rosolio, when 
myself with your granddaddy, we got married, we give, we give a little glass of Rosolio to all our guests. Wow, it's like, you know, so it really exists, those things. And, uh, and then I asked my father. And my father said, yeah, Rosolio, I remember when I was a kid, you know, like, you know, my father is from the 1950s. Like, yeah, when I was a kid, I remember, like, you know, my parents drinking something called Rosolio, but, you know, I never saw anything around. And I find it very interesting, like, you know, why making another gin? Uh, no, wait. Back then, uh, the uh, I would say the hobby it was to make vermouth amaro, and uh, uh, and then from there the hobby became to make a new gin. Today the hobby is to make non-alcoholic spirits. Uh-huh. Yeah, very, very true, very true, very true. Yeah. Uh, so and I said, like you know, why try to make another me too? Why not try to make uh, something that it will play in a, a new category? But actually, that it was popular back then. And the reality is that Rosolio is the first ever category that the Italian drinking culture ever seen. From the second renaissance, after Christopher Columbus came back from America, so sugar cane became very popular in, in Europe as well, and not just in limited quantities. That's what everybody's starting to make. It was the Ross Olis, the Dew of Sun. So anything what was available in your local garden, in your local hills, Back then, the people that were harvested, infused with uh, water because alcohol was too expensive. At the end, adding a little bit of alcohol to 45, and then dilutes a little bit with uh, uh, rose sugar. And that was the rose olis. And from there, the word rosolio. I'm going to do some research, and I find out that actually the Luxardo family, 1777, when the company was founded, they were making rosolio di marasca. And that's what today we're calling Maraschino. The Pallini family, which they make one of the most delicious limoncello in the world, they were making Rosolio di Limone. So everybody was making Rosolio. So I pick up the phone and I give a call to Matteo Luxardo. I say, Matteo, what is this about Rosolio? Yeah, we used to do it, but then it became so, you know, dated, so dusted, so such an old-fashioned category that we just removed it from the label. Ah, it's like, you know, so I'm going to bring it back. And everybody thought I was mad. Trust me, everybody thought like you know. Even my father, like you know, my my father like nobody drink rosario anymore. So like not even like you know, giving a giving a try. That was the first reason. The second reason it was my mom. I'm from the south of Italy, so during the Christmas holidays she was always making some carpaccio, some uh, uh, seafood carpaccios infused or marinated with the bergamot, bergamot juice or zest of bergamot on top. Because bergamot is a very much uh, a citrus, a winter citrus. So it, the season for bergamot is literally between end of November and end of Jan. Mm-hmm. So Christmas is the best period to enjoy a proper bergamot. And it was a very familiar taste to me, but actually I could see that nobody knew what bergamot was. You know, uh, there is one of, uh, one of the greatest gifts that uh, England spread to the world has been the tea. One of the most common tea that we drink today is the old gray tea. And people, they don't know that old gray tea is a just normal standard tea leaves infused, aromatized with the bergamot. It's not lemon, it's not orange, it's bergamot. And obviously, coming from an experience working alongside the master distiller, the master blender of Martini, I started to get a little bit into the essences and aromas and the trend. And I'm going around and I'm always like, you know, 
This is a tip for everybody. The best research you can do where the new trend they can be is actually in a perfume duty-free shop in an airport. But not spraying the perfume on you. Go there and read the back label. That's exactly the same thing that Daniel Dove said when we were talking about future trends. He said, like, go to duty-free and check what's written on the perfumes. I never shared this one with uh, with Daniel, but uh, he's one of like you know the most avant-garde person in our industry. So his word probably is much more credible than mine, <laughs> and I guarantee <laughs> he works. He works, and you know I starting to look. You know Armani Acqua di Gio. You look the back label Bergamot. Mm. I'm going to see Neroli Portofino Tom F- Bergamot. Mm. Dolce Gabbana Capri Samba Bergamot. Acqua di Parma, Bergamotto di Calabria. So everybody using Bergamotto in perfume. That June, so we launched in September. In June, I'm going for uh, a dinner at Sexy Fish restaurant in Berkeley Square, Bergamot cheesecake. I'm going in Italy for summer holiday, Bergamot ice cream, Bergamot granita. Ah, in December, Bergamot panettone. Ah, so like, you know, so there is something there, right? Uh-huh. Like, so it's like, you know, what about I'm going to be the first one to bring the bergamot as a flavor profile in the arsenal of bartenders across the world? And my goal was really like to obtain, to open the bottle. I was always telling to the design agency, when I'm opening the bottle, the first thing you need to come on my nose is bergamot. I need to feel in Calabria. I need to feel on south of Italy. I need to smell bergamot. No lemon, no orange, no grapefruit, bergamot. And this one was the second reason. And the third one, it was looking at the liqueurs, the spirits from Italy, you know, the two most popular ones, Amartini and Campari. Okay? And I was looking like, okay, I look at that. It's like, you know, okay, both of them, they are kind of like, you know, 10 euro, what, 14 euro per bottle. We all like, you know, kind of like an entry level. But then when I look at our lovely cousin in France, the same style of product, it will be 30 euro. Uh, chartreuse, look at the champagne or the sparkling wine. It's like, you know, because I truly believe that French, France as a country, a French as a nation, they know how to market themselves. They know how to position themselves in the world. When as Italian, we always underestimate and undervalue ourselves. See, I'm going to be the first one to bring a premium aperitif liqueur into the market which is going to bring back a forgotten category on completely new, unusual flavor in a stunning packaging that when you look at it, you will say Italy. And therefore, the name Italicus, which is the Latin Latin translation for Italian. So how was the process of uh, making your own product? How did you go about it? Because you don't have distilling facilities yourself. So I'm assuming you had to go through the process of finding someone who makes the actual liquid for you. Yeah, and I had already a contact in Turin. Is uh, the largest co-packer in Italy, Torino Distillati, owned by the Vergnano family. Lovely couple, lovely family. Uh, is the former Seagram distiller in Italy. Uh, that he was uh, discontinued, and the guy he bought it out uh, twenty or thirty years ago, and they're still running as a family business. So I went there, you know, uh, I went, you know, we did, we tried a little bit, but I already had a starting point because uh, the goal, in order to bring back the Rosolio, I found the recipe of the Rosolio di Torino on a book called Licorista Pratico from the 1894. So I already had the basic. 
So I went there with this recipe as it is on the book. I went to the master distiller. I said, like, can you make this recipe as exactly as it is? He took the recipe. He went to make it. A week later, I'm going back to Italy. We're going for a tasting. And guess what? Undrinkable. Really? That's very bad. Undrinkable. <laughs> undrinkable. Uh, very sweet. Uh, very floral. Uh, a little heavy on the tongue. But... Um, you know, the master distiller is like, don't be surprised. You ask me to do exactly the same. That's what I did, what is on the book. But 150 years ago, people, they, they had a different palate, different uh-huh. taste profile. So what do you expect? Like, you know, now we have a very good starting point. Probably it's like, you know, we need to change the ratio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need to add new flavor. But we have something to start with. And from that five key botanicals of the Rosolo di Torino, gentian, lemon balm, roses, lavender, and Roman chamomile. Those are the five botanicals on Rosolo di Torino. What I did, I did add cedro lemon from Sicily and EGP bergamot from Calabria. And that's how Italicus came to life. How did you go about finding distribution for it? Because I'm sure that, you know, like you have this beautiful product, but now you have to put it on the market, right? Correct. It's a combination of things. I had some contact, which I leveraged after I launched Italicus. Uh, for example, specialty drinks. You know, I remember like, you know, Rush be always very flexible and very accommodating. I had no budget. I had no experience. And I said, like, I just launched this product. Would you be so kind to, you know, pick up a few cases from Italy and bring it to UK? And, you know, you could challenge me. It's like, yeah, buy the bottle of who I'm going to sell to. I had no listing. I had no sales force. And he trusted me. He bought the bottle. And, you know, that's how we started in UK. And but literally, like, you know, after we launched on the 1st of September. So the 2nd of September, we went live with a video, with a press release. We get so many requests from markets. And we're starting to get requests and phone call. And I still remember team from uh, the bottle shop, uh, uh, sorry, um, uh, drinkshop.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, already like the day after he uh, texted me on Facebook, like, where can I buy it? I want to put on my uh, on my website. And literally like three months later, we were already available in seven markets. Uh, a year later, we were available in 15 markets. Three and a half years later now, we are available in uh, 38 markets across the world. That's a fabulous story. So I think it's a beautiful uh, thought to start to wrap this conversation around. Um, Obviously, we talked about uh, a lot of the struggles that you had throughout your career and the fact that you kept positive and you kept reinventing yourself. Uh, Speaking of that, do you have any tips for uh, people in hospitality who are probably struggling right now due to the COVID situation? Yes. Yes, uh, this is the time that everybody need to plan for the worst and hope for the best. Uh, that's what I'm keep telling everyone. I know it's been not an easy year for everyone. Uh, we're coming, you know, we are in the middle of this pandemic with so much uncertainty. But the last thing we can do is to actually put ourselves down or get depressed or, you know, starting to be negative, it's not going to help us, it's not going to help the people around us. 
We need to find small things and maybe simple things that for a while we forgot or we missed in our life that they bring positivity to us and motivation and focus on that. And if it's necessary, don't switch on your TV, don't check your Facebook because I think there is a lot of news and things flying around which they do not help the mental strength of people. And that's what I do sometimes. You know, when at some point it's just too much, it's like, you know, whatever looking around, there is some like some bad news. You know what? Not because I want to ignore the reality, but maybe for a few days, just take a break, mm-hmm. switch off your media and just enjoy a simple old style life. And just because maybe it's going to recharge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, very last question. Very curious to listen to your answer. Uh, we ask everyone this, and um, I would like to see what, what your uh, answer is. So if you could choose your very last drink, what would that drink be? Okay, that's a Thailand scenario. My very last drink, a drink that, uh, because we've been talking about uh, what it define my personal life and my career in London, and also to pay homage to one of the greatest person in our industry, that will be a Thomas Marguerite, created by Julio Bermeo. Uh, which I truly believe is a quintessential modern classic. And I remember we had so many Tommy's at Margarita at Montgomery Place with Ago and Carlito and Manuel (laughs) with any sort of tequila to try all different taste profile. And it's probably the first cocktail that uh, I will have with my wife Diana when we go out. Uh, We both Uh love tequila. Uh, so let's go for Julio's drink, the Thomas Marguerite. Oh, that's an awesome one. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for your time. It was an awesome chat. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you so much. A wonderful Christmas and a lovely New Year's Eve to everybody. Ciao, Michele. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Giuseppe. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.